Lord, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this holy communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. These are words from our Eucharistic prayer C, which in the Episcopal Church we have two different rites of communion, one with old language, which we have in this service, and then our rite two service with more modern, updated language. And in this second kind of service, we have four different options for the Eucharistic prayer that we actually say at the altar, and our third prayer, affectionately known as the Star Wars prayer, um, talks about the God, the creator of the universe, and the stars and the planets and galaxies. So our Star Wars prayer ends with, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus' last supper with his disciples, instituting the sacrament of his body and blood in remembrance of him. This was just before he went to the cross and died, and this was a meal that they would eat for the forgiveness of their sins. Solace, pardon. In John's Gospel, a meal is not mentioned at the end of Jesus' life, but in the middle of his ministry. Jesus talks about eating his body and blood, the bread which came down from heaven after he had just fed the 5,000 people in the wilderness with the loaves and the fish. They were no longer physically hungry. And yet, Jesus knew that they were still spiritually famished. They needed a different meal. Spiritual sustenance, not just to prepare for the end, but a meal for their whole lives. We consume Jesus and take him into ourselves, and we have him become a physical and a spiritual part of us, so that we can journey through this life, so that we can work for the gospel, not for solace only, but also for strength, not for pardon only, but also for renewal. While countless Christians eat this meal every week, we can never really consider it to be routine or mundane. We come here for an encounter with the divine, the creator of all that is, and the enormity and the power of that cannot be overstated. And then at Jesus' invitation, we are bold enough to eat his flesh and drink his blood in word and sacraments. The enormity and power and even audacity of that action cannot be overstated. I wonder if we're not always aware of the enormity of what we're doing when we come here. We come for an encounter with God, asking him to take part in our lives, possibly not even ready for him to say yes. Author Annie Dillard writes about Christianity and her faith, and in teaching a stone to talk, she wrote about the enormity of what we're doing here at the Eucharist. She writes, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible to conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of tea and tea to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers 
should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our cues. For the sleeping God may awake someday or take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Kids mixing up a bunch of P and P. Love that. God just may draw us out to where we can never return, may call us to follow and convict us so strongly that the whole trajectory of our lives may change. Considering the danger to our comfort and our routine, one might wonder why we risk coming here at all. I think the answer is shown in how Jesus spoke about us eating his flesh. He talked about eating flesh, but the word he used to describe that was not a nice, dainty, easy meal. The word he used connotes a ravenous ripping and chewing, the kind of eating done by someone who hasn't eaten in weeks. Jesus is emphasizing the hugeness of our spiritual hunger. He knows how much we need his life within us. He knows how ravenous our souls are for him. They don't really look particularly ravenous when we come here. We're sitting nicely, we're listening, as we partake of the first part of this meal, the reading and hearing of Scripture. Remember, Jesus is the Word of God, which spoke creation into existence. So the first part of our worship, we hear the Word of God proclaimed through Scripture. And this is a meal in and of itself, an eating of Jesus' flesh. For as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quote in Deuteronomy 8.3. We're fed by the reading of Scripture and the hearing of God's Word. In and of itself, a dangerous act where God may convict us and lead us out where we never thought we might go. Then in the second part of our meal, we're fed by the bread and wine, the flesh and blood of Jesus. And considering the enormity of what's happening in this meal, I can't help but think about the orderly way in which we approach the meal for the Eucharist. We line up and we hold our hands out and it's very nice and painful. This meal that we're starving for seems that we would be clamoring pell-mell to the table if we realized our hunger. I realize our orderly approach is also out of reverence and awe. And I'm also really glad that we're not knocking each other down to get to the altar rail and receive communion. But Jesus tells us that we are starving for this meal. And especially in John's Gospel, he doesn't really tell us how this meal works. He doesn't even give us instructions for how we are to eat his flesh at all. He simply says to do so. And he tells us what we receive in this meal in eating his flesh and blood. We receive eternal life. God's very life within us. We receive life everlasting, living forever with God. And we receive a dwelling place of God within us, abiding with God in Jesus. And we don't know exactly how that works, do we? Jesus didn't tell us how it works, and we don't need to know. For a lot of parents, it's important that their children know what's going on in the Eucharist before they eat the Eucharist. I was one of those who my parents, they needed to make sure that I I got it. I understood something of what was going on. I always encourage parents to let their children have communion as soon as they are baptized and 
eating solid food. None of us fully understand. The kids do seem to understand almost instinctively that this is not an everyday meal that we share. This is something else. This is something special. It's a mystery, and it's a joining with God and each other. As physical food goes, there's not much to it. Not much to it. Have a kid say, oh boy, I get a snack now. As food for our souls, however, the meal is enormous. And a meal which our children seem to absolutely get in their souls, if not in their minds. It is a meal, after all, for our souls, not for our minds. We share this meal and we feast on Jesus' body and blood. And he promises us life eternal abiding with Him forever, strength for our journey now, and life everlasting when our journeys have ended. It's a meal for the ravenously hungry, who are bold enough to take this meal, to risk joining with God, being strengthened by Him, and following where He may lead. Amen.